every patient that I care for is like taking care of my own child. My name is Candy, and I'm a nursing assistant at Lifespan. He's a handsome boy. I've been working in the PICU for 10 years. I love the miracles that we see. It's so rewarding. You know, the families that we get to help, they put their child in our hands. We have to be there to support them and take care of them, deliver health with care. Tonight on Rhode Island PBS Weekly. You've made uh, no secret that you think that President Biden should not be welcome to communion, even though Pope Francis sort of slapped that down. So yes, if President Biden were to find himself here, I would, uh, I would respectfully ask him not to receive Holy Communion. Mark Tebow was the first COVID-19 patient in Rhode Island. He spent weeks struggling to breathe, but was one of the lucky ones, or so he thought. My, my oxygen level was 84, which is not good. He was like, where your O2 levels right now, you should be in an ER because you, you could be having a heart attack. Welcome to Rhode Island PBS Weekly. I'm Pamela Watts. And I'm David Wright. The Diocese of Providence turns 150 years old next month, so we thought it a good time to sit down with the man who has led the diocese for nearly 20 years. Bishop Thomas Tobin was ordained a priest in 1973, the year that Roe v. Wade came into effect. He was consecrated a bishop by St. Pope John Paul II, who assigned him to Providence just a few days before his death in 2005. For Bishop Tobin's entire career in the clergy, he's been an anti-abortion activist. And now, Roe appears to be on its way out, but here in Rhode Island, abortion rights are protected by law, a law recently upheld by the state Supreme Court. Where does that leave your fight as an opponent? Right. Unfortunately, I don't think it will change the status quo here in Rhode Island because we do have this state law that uh, legalizes abortion. But we have to try to get people to understand why this is such an important issue, why abortion is so wrong, regardless of what the laws of the land say. Abortion is wrong. It's, it's a grave sin. It's an abominable crime, as the Second Vatican Council said, or as Pope Francis has said more recently, very clearly, abortion is murder. You've made uh, no secret that you think that President Biden should not be welcome to communion, even though Pope Francis sort of slapped that down. Well, we don't know exactly what Pope Francis said to President Biden, because that wasn't exactly completely fulfilled, revealed after their meeting in Rome. When was that last fall, I guess? So we don't know exactly what that exchange was. President Biden said that the Pope told him he's a good Catholic. Is that possible? I suppose it's possible, but we don't really know. But there are lots but of But the people. U.S. Conference of Bishops sure. was looking to deny communion to President Biden. Well, Pope so, Francis you know, sent a fairly strong message saying, don't obsess over this guy. Right. Well, I think what the Pope himself has indicated, it's really, we need to follow the practice and the policy and the law of the church on that. It's up to the local bishop to decide who receives the sacraments his own diocese. So if President Biden came to church here, you wouldn't give him the wafer? That's correct. 
Really? Yeah, and again, it's not just the wafer. It's, we believe, the body and of blood of Christ. We're not passing out potato chips or cookies. It's the body and blood of Christ. So yes, if President Biden were to find himself here, I would, uh, I would respectfully ask him not to receive Holy Communion. And keep in mind that there are a lot of Catholics who should not be receiving Holy Communion. Being a Catholic is not a, a passport to Holy Communion. Why is the church not as aggressive with politicians who support the death penalty? Well, first of all, uh, you know, the church has increasingly said the death penalty is wrong. However, there are differences in terms, first of all, of numbers. Right to life is right to life, right? Yeah, of course even it for is. prisoners, even for inmates. And that's what I just said. The church has increasingly said that capital punishment is wrong. Right. And, and you know, I, I believe that. I've spoken and written against capital punishment. So for, should politicians who support the death penalty well, I think they need receive to communion? I think they need to examine their conscience on that. But keep in mind, there's a, there's a uh, liturgical and canonical difference. Uh, first of all, in terms of capital punishment, versus abortion, there are what in the United States, maybe 50 executions a year, which is terrible in itself. There are 600,000 babies who are killed in abortion. The church has always said that abortion is wrong. And we're coming to understand that capital punishment is usually wrong as well. The Vatican Council said that abortion and euthanasia are abominable crimes. It's never said that about capital punishment. Before Roe versus Wade came into effect, the Catholic Church was an important part of the safety net for unwed mothers and unwanted pregnancies. <clears throat> we saw how well that went. 9,000 dead babies in Ireland alone, according to the Murphy Report, mass graves in Canada, uh, a sexual abuse scandal that has ripped apart this church from coast to coast and around the world. Mm -hmm. What's the safety net now? Well, that's one of the things, and I'm very, very glad you asked that question because often people will say, well, you're opposed to you know, abortion and you're worried about unborn children. What do you do for children after they're born? The Catholic Church, and I can speak specifically to this diocese, we're providing care for children more than any other agency in the state, except for the state itself. By far, the Catholic Church is the largest providing of social services in this state more than any other organization. So yeah, we're concerned about unborn children. We're also deeply concerned about, and we pray for and fund services for, for children as well, and families. Fantastic. But uh, don't discard it. I'm not discarding it at all, yeah. but I am looking to form a connection between the debate over abortion and the, the terrible sexual abuse scandal that this church has suffered. Mm -hmm. How does the church have any moral authority at all well, on the idea of protecting life yeah. when it did such a horrible job protecting all of those lives. Sure. Well, and, you know, let's be very clear. The sexual abuse scandal has been terrible. It's been terrible for the, the victims, the survivors involved, for their families, for the church, for our community. It's been a terrible thing. But the alternative would be to say what? Because we had this terrible scandal, we're not going to do anything good now. Of course we do good things now. And we recognize the terrible harm of the sexual abuse scandal. Of course, but you had a priest here in West Warwick two years ago say that abortion is worse than pedophilia, that at least with mm -hmm. pedophilia nobody dies. Right. Do you agree with him? No, and I said at the time I didn't agree with him. And he also recanted that, by the way. It was a poorly um, framed statement, and he since acknowledged that, and we acknowledged it at the time. It was, a, it was an improper thing and um, inappropriate thing to say. Are you confident that sexual abuse no longer happens in the Diocese of Providence? 
Yeah, well, of course, you can never guarantee anything. We have a large diocese. We have lots of people, and it's, it's a terrible sin, a terrible um, situation for, for human beings when we sexually abuse other people, especially children. So I can't guarantee anything. But if it does happen, it will be dealt with Absolutely. We have an excellent program of uh, reporting every single incident of sexual abuse. We've had reported the diocese in the last 30 years has been reported to civil authorities. This whole issue has cost the Catholic Church in terms of people in the pews, people losing faith yeah. with the institution. And in the midst of that, you have COVID, yes. where people need spiritual comfort more than ever. But for different reasons, the church's hands are tied. How have you managed to weather COVID? Well, it's been difficult, of course. It's been challenging for us and for, as you say, everybody else in, in the world and society. Um, but I think the church has done fairly well. Our attendance is picking up again. Um, we're hearing anecdotally around the diocese that people are coming back to Sunday Mass and uh, our Catholic schools have done very well, in fact. Enrollment has jumped in the Catholic schools because, people, because the public schools were closed. Yeah, and I think people wanted in-person learning because most of our schools stayed open almost all the time during COVID, very safely. We had no outbreaks of COVID during all that. We certainly hope and, and pray that they will find the benefit of Catholic education and stay in there even now public schools are open again. Looking around the state, the country, the world, what do you see to be the biggest and most urgent spiritual crisis, <coughs> aside from abortion, which we've already discussed? Yeah, well, again, abortion is a terrible moral crisis, but I think the lack of appreciation for God's presence and grace in our lives, the, the lack of religious practice in the Catholic Church and Protestant churches and other faith communities. Pope John Paul said, one of the great challenges of our time is the practical and existential atheism of our age. He says, people no longer bother to deny the existence of God. They simply try to live without him. And that's what we find. You know, people are not as religious as they used to be. And they're not going to church anywhere, any denomination, as much as they used to. And that's a problem for the Catholic Church, but for other religious communities as well. What do you do about that? Well, we keep plugging away, and uh, we do our best, but we also believe very much in faith and trust. We do our best, but in the end, it's, it's in God's hands. And now, some startling new information came out this week when the Centers for Disease Control released a new study on adult COVID survivors. The government agency recently found that one in five individuals under the age of 65 experiences at least one lingering health condition after having COVID. And for individuals older than 65, that number jumps to one in four. These conditions are often known as long COVID because symptoms can last for a month or much more after the initial infection. The symptoms can include lung embolisms, kidney failure, and a variety of mental health conditions. To better understand what it's like to have COVID and experience long COVID, Michelle San Miguel paid a visit last March to those who have survived the virus, including the first person in Rhode Island who contracted it. 
we discovered what we believe is the first case of coronavirus here in the state of Rhode Island. The state says it's been preparing for this day. We've since learned new information about the man with coronavirus here in Rhode Island. It was March 1st, 2020, when then Governor Gina Raimondo announced the first case of COVID-19 in the state. Although no one knew at the time, that patient was school administrator Mark Tebow. He had recently returned to Rhode Island after a trip to Europe where he was chaperoning a group of students. On the flight home, Tebow started to feel sick. His wife Brenda urged him to go to a walk-in clinic near their home in Coventry. I, I would describe it as um, the flu on steroids. It was body aches, extreme fatigue, um, headache like a migraine, um, difficult breathing, coughing. Tebow's lived with asthma his whole life, but he says this felt different. Several days into being home, his symptoms continued to worsen. The 48-year-old was admitted into Miriam Hospital and became the first person in Rhode Island to test positive for COVID-19. Doctors did not know if Tebow would survive. I kept looking out you know, the glass to the ICU and there were dozens of doctors and state officials and, you know, the infection team and they're all looking at me and I could see them and I'm intubated. Then they, the priest came in and read me my last rites because you know, no one was really sure I was going to, you know, make it in the next 12 hours. Tebow spent three weeks fighting double pneumonia and COVID in the hospital. Once he was discharged, he was motivated to return to his routine. He was worried it would take six months or more to fully recover. I didn't want it to take that long, so I just started really pushing myself, you know, you know to exercise. But several months after leaving the hospital, Tebow still found himself dealing with lingering effects of the virus. He'd experience shortness of breath for 10 to 20 minute intervals, and his blood oxygen level was fluctuating. So much so, he remembers a healthcare worker turning pale while examining him. My oxygen level was 84, which is not good. That's when he explained to me, he's like, where your O2 levels right now, you should be in an ER because you, you could be having a heart attack. Tebow was then referred to a cardiologist. I did a stress test um, and all those tests came back normal and my heart was 100% fine. How did doctors explain it? What was the reason behind it? They didn't know and, and they, would, they, would, they would be honest with me. They would tell me, we don't have enough information. You're, you're our first person that we're actually studying here. No one was talking about long COVID at that time. You know, that conversation didn't happen months, months later. More than a million Americans could have symptoms for weeks or even months after contracting the virus. Their symptoms run the gamut from shortness of breath to heart palpitations to extreme fatigue. Soon, doctors across the country and around the world began to realize many patients were reporting symptoms that weren't going away. So for a lot of us, we think that the pandemic is coming to an end, but for many patients, the pandemic endures on through this phenomenon and um, really a disease called long COVID. Dr. Francesca Bodwin is an emergency physician and chair of epidemiology at Brown University. 
Bodwin and other researchers at the School of Public Health are studying the impact of long COVID. There are estimates that anywhere from 1 in 20 to I've seen as high as 30% of people who've had COVID-19 go on to develop long COVID, but really wide estimates depending on, on the source. So that would mean tens of millions of people in this country are dealing with long COVID. Potentially at the higher, at the higher end, you know, if we're thinking about 80 million plus people who have been infected at this point, it's a lot of people that we're talking about. Liani Santos is among the countless people suffering from long COVID. You never know, you could go in one day to the, go into the hospital because you're having some stomach pains and next thing you know, you're waking up a month and a half later and your whole life has changed. Santos has been dealing with recurring symptoms since she was hospitalized for COVID-19 in April of 2021. She was five months pregnant when she was placed in a medically induced coma at Rhode Island Hospital. When she woke up a month and a half later, she learned she had given birth to her daughter, Charlotte. And then I remember asking, asking them and I'm just like, I pointed towards my belly and I'm like, how's the baby? And then they just shook their head. And in that moment, I didn't have a reaction because I'm just like processing. Um, so that's when I found out that she wasn't able to be saved. Her daughter lived for eight days and passed away while Santos was still in a coma. The main thing is acknowledging that Charlotte lived. She was here. It's hard. I wish she was here, but she's not. So I got to keep moving. You know, there's other people that depend on me. Along with grieving for the loss of her child, Santos continues to have COVID symptoms including a persistent cough, shortness of breath, brain fog, anxiety, and body aches. You look at me, you think, oh, she's just, she's fine. There's nothing going on. And it's like, little do you know, my back is like on fire right now. And it's just like really hard. Later on, I'm gonna have to get up and I'm gonna have to walk around and have to take care of household duties. Something as simple as standing in front of the stove and cooking, it's like, it hurts. Her family is her motivation to keep going. She takes her father to dialysis in addition to working two part-time jobs. Santos says she and her husband, who also had COVID, depleted their savings while they were sick. A lot of it is still very draining. The little driving she does do is to go to work and to help her family. I just rather limit my social circle and who I'm around because I am afraid to, you know, to have COVID once again, considering it was so severe. Even people who were asymptomatic or had mild symptoms can still develop long COVID. That's right. Some people have a seemingly very mild case and then go on to develop symptoms that are delayed in onset. Long COVID qualifies as a disability under the Americans with Disabilities Act. But Dr. Bodwin says she's found that patients become frustrated because they can't get a diagnosis since there is no formal test to check if they even have the condition. And worse, they feel that the medical community doesn't believe them. They feel, um, somebody used the term gaslit by the medical community, that they're being made to feel like this is anxiety or depression from the pandemic or that they're crazy or it's in their head.
Santos knows it's not in her head. She spent months in rehab working to regain her strength. Are you hopeful that you will make a full recovery? I'm very hopeful. I'm very hopeful. Um, I don't feel that I survived for me to live in this state, you know, forever. As for Thibaut, he says his lingering COVID-19 symptoms lasted for 10 months before they went away. Every day, he says, he thinks about how grateful he feels to be alive. It usually happens um, on my drive to work in the morning when it's quiet and the sun's coming up and I'm looking at the horizon here and I, I say to myself, I get to see another sunrise. I get to see another green field and a blue sky and, and I appreciate it. Some studies suggest vaccines can reduce the chances of getting long COVID. Mark Tebow and Liani Santos are both vaccinated now, but had not received the shots when they first contracted the virus. Liani Santos still has some long COVID symptoms, body pain, a cough, shortness of breath. She says she's still working part-time and taking care of her dad, but she's passed her real estate exam and hopes to be licensed and become a realtor. Up next, we have a story about a flag, not just any flag. This is the oldest known intact banner to be discovered in North America. Rhode Island PBS producer-director Jamie McGuire has been documenting the painstaking work that's been done to verify the flag and its history. Tonight, we bring you a portion of this Rhode Island PBS original documentary, A Stitch in Time. In the annex to the town hall, known as the Burnside Memorial Building, uh, in a case, they had a, a collection of historic flags that were wrapped around the original flagpole, covered in, in plastic, and kind of stored there for many decades. We assume that these flags were Civil War related. Um, uh, Burnside, at one point, was head of the Ninth Corps of the Union Army, which is a significant uh, section of the Union Army. And the headquarters flag for that unit was missing. It's not known, no one knows where it exists today. So we had the hope that this was Burnside's headquarters flag when he was commander of the Ninth Corps in the Union Army. That was our, that was my hope going into this thing. There's a three pane window, beautiful light shining into this room and this case that they custom built for these flags to be put into. Um, I guess in the 1980s sometime, someone had seen the flags that were just on their poles hanging in this case um, and said, oh, those are falling apart. We should do something about that. So we'll roll them up and hopefully that will give us more time to think about what to do. So I said, if we're going to unroll these flags, we should do it the one time, the last time, if we're going to conserve them, if we're going to take care of them and look at, what, look at them and see what they are. What happens when you roll something around a pole is it gets used to being in that shape. In order to counteract that, I decided to humidify them. We created a humidity tent to go over the flags and um, raise the humidity of the flags, I think between 50 and 60% for about a week. I was invited by Patrick to come and look at some flags that were on loan from Bristol and I uh, was pretty excited about the potential of what could be in that pile of flags. I always have to anticipate 
the unanticipated. So that I've been doing this long enough to know that when you get into these things, the artifact is gonna tell you what it is. So all the guessing and all the speculating won't put you onto what you're actually gonna see. And I remember getting underneath the plastic on each one of these, and it wasn't until I got to the last one that I kind of had a, huh, moment. <laughs> and I remember Patrick saying, what's, huh, what's that mean? <laughs> and I said, it's not weighted silk. And they said, what does that mean? And I said, it's a twill weave silk fabric. It's older than these other flags. And they're like, how much older? I don't know. And so we start to unfurl this gold colored flag and we're all standing there watching and we're waiting, you know, you're expecting a flag that there's gonna be something embroidered on it or painted on it, some sort of symbol, words. Is there going to be a picture in the middle? Is there going to be painting on it? Is there going to be letters? Are there going, is there going to be a canton? Is, 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 is. There was nothing. It was just plain gold colored. And we're all just kind of, I think with, we all just stared at it, not saying a word. And I felt, honestly, I felt a little let down because I'm thinking, how are we going to figure out what this is? If there's nothing on it, it must not really be anything important was kind of the feeling that I had. If there were a painted dot design or something on the other side, you'd see it. I mean, this is how it was supposed to be flown, right? Facing this way. Just kind of unique without having a unit designation or some sort of emblemism, but there's, there's a, it is what it is. There's a purpose for it. It's just, uh, I was expecting to see a crest or some identification on there. Our thanks to Jamie McGuire. You can see the full documentary, A Stitch in Time, right here on Rhode Island PBS, Monday, May 30th at 7.30 p.m. Finally tonight, commentator Lila Alphonse of the Boston Globe is here to talk about the tragic school shootings in Texas last Tuesday. Nineteen children were killed on May 23rd in a shooting at an elementary school in Uvalde, Texas. The shooter, who had posted warnings on social media saying he was going to attack a school, shot his grandmother in the face before driving over to the Robb Elementary School. Once inside the school, he locked himself in a fourth grade classroom and started shooting everyone in it. He used an AR-15 style semi-automatic rifle that he had purchased legally just days earlier after he turned 18 on May 16th. He actually purchased two of them within three days, along with 375 rounds of ammunition. Personally, I'm struck by many things about this attack. I'm a mother and stepmother of five kids, some of whom are adults now. I don't want to imagine the turmoil these parents are in, but I can't help it. It's just there. I'm struck by the way teachers are watching the news, knowing they would give themselves up to save their students the way Irma Garcia and Ava Morales did. They plan for it, hoping they never have to, but knowing they have to. I'm struck by the immediate anti-immigrant rhetoric pouring out on social media, even though the shooter was born in North Dakota and the children he killed were likely U.S. citizens. I'm struck by the fact that the massacre at Sandy Hook was 10 years ago, which means that today's monsters went through active shooter drills at school themselves as children and know how to circumvent or exploit them. And I'm struck by those who throw out red herrings, talking about politics instead of people, those who prefer to blame mental illness in order to protect their ability to buy weapons, 
those who, like Uvalde Mayor Don McLaughlin, appear more outraged about a news conference being interrupted than they are by another school shooting. According to the Washington Post, there have been 3,500 mass shootings since Sandy Hook in 2012. There have been gun incidents at 331 schools since Columbine in 1999. There were 42 school shootings in 2021 alone. More than 34,500 children have been killed or injured in shooting incidents since 2014. We are long past needing change. At this point, those who say nothing can be done are actively choosing to do nothing. And those who prioritize gun purchases over children's lives are acknowledging that they think dead children are an acceptable price to pay to preserve their own freedoms. Thoughts and prayers won't save kids from being killed at school. Restricting or banning the sale of AR-15 type rifles will. Our guns are not worth this. Our thanks to Lila Alphonse. That's our broadcast this evening. Thank you for joining us. I'm David Wright. I'm Pamela Watts. We'll be back next week with another edition of Rhode Island PBS Weekly. Until then, you can visit us online to see all of our stories and past episodes at ripbs.org weekly or listen to our podcast, available on all of your favorite audio streaming platforms. Good night.